everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. But be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been as far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. One day when Jesus was teaching in his earthly ministry, he took a young child and he displayed the child before the crowd, and he said this, a statement that I've often puzzled about throughout the course of my Christian life. He said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I've always puzzled over that especially since I have raised five children. Five children are not, these five children, and I'm sure every child I've ever dealt with, you would never say about them that they're innocent. Matter of fact, you wouldn't say that they're really humble. So what does Jesus mean that we need to become like little children? How could he possibly say that that's the basis for entering the kingdom of heaven? Well, I think in order to understand what he's getting at, you need to understand that he's speaking in relative terms. A child relative to an adult. In order to accept the gospel, sin-hardened adults need to have the attitude of a child, which, relatively speaking, is more humble. And relatively speaking, is more trusting and, relatively speaking, is much more hopeful about life. Humility, trust, and hope. When you look at the attitude of children, it's certainly a far greater, to a far greater degree than what we see 
among those of us who live many years in this fallen world. Children are born sinners, sinful from the point of conception. But as they experience life in this fallen world, what happens to their sinful natures is that they become more hardened in that sin because of their own sins and because of the sins of others against them. They put up walls. They become more distrustful, more cynical. And they become jaded by life. I grieve when I meet a new child that I've never met before, a child to whom I'm a stranger, because I always see that distrust in their eyes. Because we as a culture have taught our children not to trust strangers for good reason. It's really a shame that we have to teach our children that. It's a result of living in a broken, fallen world. And as our children grow, they're going to learn more intimately, more graphically, how skeptical, how cynical, how distrusting they need to be of the people that they interact with. By the time we become adults, we are far less humble, far less trusting of others, and far less hopeful in life. When we pray for somebody, when you think about somebody you're praying for to come to know the Lord, I hope that the first thing you pray for is for the Holy Spirit to soften their hearts. But what are you praying for when you ask that? What does it mean to have a softened heart? Isn't it the same thing that Jesus said a person has to have in order to enter the kingdom of God? A childlike spirit. A heart that is able to trust in the word of God and trust in Christ. A heart that is humble enough to turn from self-seeking and pride and submit to Christ as Savior and Lord. A heart that is able to hope in Christ. That's what a softened heart is. It's a heart with a childlike spirit. You see, we've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a heavy book. A lot of dark messages in this book. And we've been introduced to the preacher, the one in Hebrews named Koheleth, the one that I call Q for short. He's the preacher teacher, the philosopher, who presents a view of the world that is under the sun, the phrase he keeps using. In other words, he committed himself to pursue reality, to find out truth in every aspect of life. And he was a wealthy king in Israel. He had all the resources of his kingdom to apply to the search. And he searched out every area of life in order to find meaning, in order to find purpose. You notice in verse 15, the passage we read today, it says, In my vain life, I have seen everything. And already... You pick up on that cynicism, that hopelessness. Now, as we've said, that the writer of this book of Ecclesiastes was a great king in Israel. It may well have been Solomon. We don't know for sure. But whoever wrote the book of Ecclesiastes wanted to portray reality under the sun. So he creates the preacher, this, this literary character, so to speak, the preacher, Q who describes what life under the sun is and tells us what life is if we cannot know anything from beyond the sun. If there's no word from heaven, if there's no divine revelation, no word from God, then what is true? What is life like under the sun? 
He has pursued meaning and purpose through knowledge and wisdom, through riches, through work, through wine, through women, through song. And at the end of every search, he comes back with the same conclusion. All is vanity. It's all meaningless. It's all like soap bubbles. It's pretty for a moment, but it's gone in a second. Q has a hardened heart. Q has lost his childlike spirit. That's why this book is so heavy, because it's presenting the view of someone who sees nothing beyond the sun. Last week, we ended on his reflection upon the curse that God has placed upon creation. Again, he believes in a creator, he believes in a judge, but he does not take into his worldview a word from heaven. So he he sees that the world is under a curse, that things are broken. They're not the way they were meant to be. Look at verse 13. This is the verse that we looked at at the end of our time last week. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? The brokenness, the crookedness of this fallen world is because God has placed it under a curse in response to our sin. The answer that Q gives to that question is obviously no one can make straight what God has made crooked. And so with that pessimistic view for, with, over life, for life, he gives us advice. And I just want to stay before I start, understand that the advice he gives is in light of his view of the world under the sun, this pessimistic view of the world. How do you face a crooked world then, if, that, if all there is is what's under the sun? And he starts out in verse 15 by making an observation that he's made several times before. He says in verse 15, I'll read it for you again. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. We've heard this before, haven't we? It really deeply troubles him, and should trouble all of us, that righteous people suffer and wicked people prosper. Far too often that's the case in this fallen world. That's not what we're taught to expect when we have our childlike spirits, is it? When we're children, we're told, obey the rules. And if you obey the rules, life will go well for you. If you follow the recipe, you'll end up with a cake that's beautiful and tasty. If you study hard, you'll get A's in school. If you throw the ball to first base before the runner gets there, he's called out. That's the rules. Things are supposed to work by rules. And when you follow the rules, things are supposed to go well in life. You're supposed to live long and prosper. Matter of fact, Deuteronomy chapter 4 in the context of giving Moses giving the law of God to God's people, seems to imply this. It says, Therefore you shall keep his God's statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Obey, and then you'll live long and prosper. Seems to be what Moses is saying to the people of Israel. But as Q looks at this cursed and broken world, he doesn't look very long to say, it doesn't happen that way much of the time. Instead, it seems like everything's upside down. The righteous suffer while the wicked live long and prosper. And this is wrong, and he's right, it's wrong. But if that's the only reality you know, what that does is it begins to harden your heart. The psalmist Asaph in Psalm 73 talks about this struggle in his own heart. The same thing. In the beginning of chapter seven, or Psalm 73, he says, 
As for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He goes on to say in verses, verse, beginning of verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. The wicked live long and prosper. And then he looks back at his own life and whatever suffering he was going through, this is how he describes it. He says, all in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence for all the day long. I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Verse 16, he says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. See, this is where Q was. It's wearisome. It's, It's hardening to the heart. It breeds cynicism in my heart. When following the rules, especially God's rules, doesn't result in an easy and comfortable and prosperous life. And yet I look at my wicked neighbors and they seem to live long and prosper. It's not right. You see, that's what's happened in all of our hearts to one degree or another. We're all cynics and we're, we're, we're a cynical people in a very cynical culture. Just think of one word and what image it puts, brings to your mind. What's the word politician bring to your mind? One of the most negative words in our vocabulary, politician. And what that means is we've lost the hope and the trust that good people can make good laws that will be enforced justly. That's what our country and our culture is built upon, and we've lost the hope. We're cynics. That's what happens to the human heart as you reflect upon the broken world around you. So how does he, he gives us advice, three words of advice for us to live. The first one is avoid the extremes. Avoid the extremes in life. If you look at verses 16 to 18, this is one of the best sets of verses to use in teaching biblical interpretation. Because before you approach these verses, you need to go back to the rule of biblical interpretation that says never take verses out of context. He says here, listen carefully to what Q says. In light of this broken world, in his cynical heart, he says, be not overly righteous. Be not overly righteous. And do not make yourself too wise. Do not be overly wicked, he says, as though moderately wicked is okay. You see... Q has become cynical as he's looked at life under the sun. You would never hear those words coming out of the mouth of Moses or Jesus or Peter or Paul. Matter of fact, Jesus affirmed the words of Moses when he says, Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. That's the teaching of Jesus. But Q says, Don't be overly righteous, don't be overly wise, and don't be overly wicked. I've said before that when you read what Q says in these sections of Ecclesiastes, you have to view it in a similar way that we view the friends of Job in the book of Job. You know, you don't just take Job's friends' statements out of context because you have to understand when you read those passages in the book of Job that the people who said them, their worldview, their view of religion, their view of God was skewed. And you need to interpret it in light of the entire purpose of the book. And so it is with Q. You need to understand that what he says, you need to understand the light of Solomon or whatever godly king wrote the book, what his purpose is in presenting his perspective, his worldview. These statements, don't be overly righteous and don't be overly wicked, that makes sense if Q 
Hugh's worldview is the only right worldview, that what's under the sun is all that's here, and when we die, it's over. Then it makes sense. Then what he says is true. Don't be overly righteous. Don't be overly wicked. Moderation in all things. Isn't that the world's motto? Moderation in all things. Don't be extreme in anything. Find that middle, comfortable, safe ground, even in morality. Don't be a radical. Don't be a fanatic. Don't be some kind of religious nut. But don't be a addicted, promiscuous reprobate who ends up in jail either. You want a good life under the sun? If, if this is all there is and when we die we turn to dust, then be moderate. Going too far in either direction towards righteousness or wickedness is just going to make your life difficult under the sun. That's what he's saying. Be good enough to live a relatively easy and comfortable life under the sun. You see, that's what he's been promoting. If you understand what I'm saying about this passage, you'll understand better what he's been saying all those different places several times in the book of Ecclesiastes already. He says things like, the best you can do under the sun is to enjoy good drink, a good meal, and enjoy a good day's work. Isn't that that moderate, middle ground, comfortable, suburban American life that we all strive for? He says, if, if this life is all there is, then that's, that's the best you can do. I'll read one of those examples for you back in chapter 5, verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun for the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Let me just ask you, have you settled for that life? Does that describe your life? Moderately wicked, moderately righteous, and you determine that's good enough. Because if this life is all there is, then you've probably chosen the right way. But of course, we keep saying over and over again that Q's keep trying to say, Q is saying to us, there's more to life than what you can see under the sun. That's what his view's worldview is to say to us, is you need to look above the sun for truth, and we'll get to that. The second word of advice that Q gives is, if this is reality, then accommodate to the norm. In other words, fit in. In verse 20, he says something that sounds like good Pauline theology from straight out of the book of Romans. He says, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Just like Paul said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's looking around at this broken world around us, and all he sees is sin everywhere in his own heart and the hearts of everyone around him. He restates it in verse 29 at the end of the passage. He says, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. You see, Q doesn't look for a word from heaven, but you don't need a word from heaven to know this. He knows it from observation. Matter of fact, Phil Riken, in his commentary, his sermon on this passage, he says, depravity is the one doctrine of the Christian faith that can be proven empirically. It's plainly obvious by scientific observation that everyone is wicked to the core, that everyone is a sinner. Q doesn't 
follow this, though, with the good news that the rest of Scripture does. In Romans, Paul goes on to talk about a redeemer. But here, Q says, okay, let me tell you to live life then in light of the reality that everybody's a sinner. He says, do not take to heart all the things that people say. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Now, it's interesting he goes to the sins of the tongue because the sins of the tongue are the quickest sins to reveal what's in your heart. But what he says about it, now, in a different context, this is where context is important, in a different context, he could be saying, don't be self-righteous, don't be judgmental, because you're a sinner too. But that's not quite what he's saying in this context, I don't think. What he's saying is, don't get too bent out of shape about the sin in everybody else because you're a sinner too. Everybody does it, I think is really his point. Everybody does it. It's a, what he says is, is a resignation. It's, it's, a, it's an increase of that cynicism that we've been talking about. Everybody tells little white lies. Everybody cheats on their taxes. Don't the police really expect you to drive five miles an hour over the speed limit? Doesn't everybody take supplies home from their work? Everybody does it. Don't get too bent out of the shape about the fact that you overheard somebody, one of your employees or family members, talking bad about you in the other room. Don't get bent out of shape about it because you've done it too. You see, that's the cynical approach to dealing with sin in yourself and the lives of others. Just get used to it. Accept it. That's the norm. And that brings me to his third word of advice, which is give up on relationships. Relationships are way too hard. Give up on them, he says. You know, all through this book, all through the book of Ecclesiastes, the one thing, as he searched out life under the sun, the one thing that Q really hates is death. Because death is what makes even the good things in life meaningless and purposeless. It's because we die and turn to dust in the end that good food, good drink, and a good job really doesn't mean anything in the big scheme of things. He hates death, but did you notice there's one thing he hates more than death in this passage? One thing he says, to quote him, that is more bitter than death? Women. It's what he says. That's what he's found out in all of his searches under the sun. He says in verse 26, The thing that is more bitter than death is the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. Now, some commentators look at that verse and they say, well, he's thinking about one particularly bad seductress in his life, some woman who really led him astray. No, he doesn't give you that option because he goes on to say in the next verse, he says, one man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among these I have not found. He's not found a single woman that's worth giving his heart to. Now, we've talked before, we don't know for sure that Solomon wrote this, but this is another little indication that maybe it was Solomon. Remember how many wives and concubines Solomon had? 700 wives, 300 concubines. He says, I found one man out of a thousand that's a good man. I've not found any women out of a thousand. Now, I think part of it was the parameters of his search. It was probably a big reason why you couldn't find a good woman. When you go after a thousand women, you're not likely to find a good one. And, you know, to be honest, he doesn't say here that that Proverbs 31 woman isn't out there somewhere. All he says is, in my diligent search, I haven't found her. I think what you're, you know, if you're a guy and you're patting yourself on the back saying, well, see, Q says I'm better than women, 
don't get too proud of yourself because when you break it down, he's saying that men are one-tenth of one percent better than women because only one out of a thousand actually is, is worth uh, having a relationship is what he's saying. You see, his point, you know, and I think, you know, if a woman wrote this, if Q was a woman, she would just, she would flip it on its head. She would just say, I have found one woman among a thousand that's worth being in a relationship but not a single man. If that's what sex and romance does to the relationship between men and women too much. His point is not about the relative value of men and women. His point is about how broken relationships are, how painful they are. And yes, I am sure if he had a thousand wives, if this is Solomon talking, you know, through Q, then yeah, he's had an awful lot of pain, awful lot of damage. And that's what relationships are like under the sun because we're all sinners. We've all been so hurt by bad relationships in our lives. And bad relationships, broken relationships, painful relationships make it very hard to be humble, to be trusting, and to be hopeful in life, which is the childlike spirit. Broken relationships will steal that childlike spirit away from you quicker than anything. It's what makes your heart hard, makes you cynical, Most marriage counseling that I do is trying to sort through all the damage and brokenness that has come into these the individuals and the couple in their lives through relationships, the relationship with their parents and relationships with other people in their in their background. That's what causes ninety percent or more of the problems in a marriage: are bad relationships, damage from before. And the last stage of heart-heartedness, the last stage is when you stop trusting and you decide to live for self, live for pride. You see, that's the polar opposite of the childlike spirit that Jesus said we need to enter the kingdom of God. Again, it's such a heavy message, but it's true. And you don't get to the good news without first looking at the bad news that Q keeps in front of us week by week. He needs an answer from above. He needs a word from God. He needs something to give him hope as he lives out his life under the sun. And do you notice there in the very middle of this passage, he laments that he hasn't gotten this wisdom from above. He says, all this I have tested, verse 23, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been, that which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? He's despairing of ever having the wisdom that can give the big answers to life. But God has spoken. You know, it's interesting. I've talked about the parallels to the book of Job. Job is so much, the book of Job is so much like the book of Ecclesiastes. But the difference between Q in the book of Ecclesiastes and Job in the book of Job is that Job got a word from God. He received revelation about what's above the sun and beyond the sun and beyond death. Listen to what he says, the exact same thing about not having wisdom for the big answers of life. He has a whole chapter devoted to it in Job 28. I want to read to you a couple portions of it. Beginning in verse 12, he says, But where shall wisdom be found? Now, let me begin. This is Job who is suffering. God has taken everything away from him. A A righteous man. Talk about the righteous suffering. Job has had everything taken away from him, even his health. And he says, where shall wisdom be found and where is the place of understanding? 
Man does not know its worth, and it's not found in the land of the living. It's not found under the sun, he says. The deep says it's not in me, and the sea says it's not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. Flipping over then to verse 20, he says, From where then does wisdom come, and where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all the living. See, that sounds like Q. I need some answers to the big questions of life. But Job, throughout the book of Job, keeps coming back to hearing a word from God. And this, if you remember what we read a few weeks ago, is what Job heard from God directly. This is the word from heaven. And this is why Job was able to endure by faith. He says in chapter 19, beginning in verse 23, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. You see, he had a word from heaven. There is a Redeemer. There is hope of enduring past death. And not only enduring past death, but being forgiven for all your sins. And being made righteous. There is a hope for everyone, even the worst of sinners. There's hope. There has been one good man among a thousand. There's been one good man among the billions who have ever lived on the face of the earth. The God-man. The one who is eternally the Son of God, who added to his divine nature a human nature and dwelt in our midst and lived a perfectly righteous life, the only one true righteous one. And he made himself a sacrificial lamb. He allowed himself to be nailed to the cross as a sacrifice for my sins and your sins. And he bore the wrath of God that our sins deserved on the cross, and he died in our place, but God raised him from the dead. And when he raised him from the dead, he gave us the power over death. And he gave us atonement, forgiveness, so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see the lousy sinners that we are. He sees the righteousness of his son. And he breaks the power of sin over us so that we are able to pursue righteousness. Even as sinners in this life under the sun, we can become righteous by his grace through the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where Humility and trust and hope comes from. It comes from the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the rest of Scripture. That's the word from heaven that has come to man under the sun to give us hope. In Romans 7, chapter 7, Paul paints a very similar picture to what Q paints of the sinfulness of mankind of how captive to sin and death we are under the sun. And at the end of chapter 7, he closes with these words. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's what Q is saying. And he says, I can't find out. I don't know because I'm only looking under the sun. But Paul says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the message of the rest of Scripture. That's what the worldview of Q is meant to point us to. Q is the bearer of the bad news. 
Jesus Christ is the bearer of the good news. If we go back to Psalm 73, Asaph, who wrote that psalm, who struggled with the fact that the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper, he suffered with the same thing that Q did. And he said, it was wearisome to my heart, it was wearisome to my soul, it was making me cynical, it was making me lose hope. But then, he says, let me read to you the rest of that, of, of Psalm 73. Get the rest of his story, the rest of his testimony, beginning in verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, and there I discerned their end, the, wicked's, the end of the wicked. Truly you have set them in slippery places. You make them to fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Down to verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's the rest of the story. That's the hope that's offered to any sinner who will come to Christ for forgiveness and eternal life. Jesus told the story about a wealthy man who lived in prosperity, but at his gates there was a poor beggar named Lazarus. And Jesus said that both these men died. And after death, the poor man, Lazarus, went to be comforted, and he's in heaven fellowshipping with Abraham and all the saints. The rich man went to hell. And as he was suffering in the torments of hell for every last sin that he committed in word, thought, and deed, he somehow, in the story that Jesus tells, is able to see Lazarus being comforted in the presence of the saints, in the presence of God in heaven. And he says, Abraham, send Lazarus to have mercy upon me, to help me. Do you remember how Abraham responded? Abraham said, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, but now Lazarus is comforted here and you are in anguish. You see, believing in life after death and the reality of what's true after death, as Jesus revealed it, the Son of God, is what gives you the perspective to have hope. That's reality. There is a redeemer so that the power of sin and death is broken. We can pursue holiness and we can have relationships even under the sun that are redeemed and grace-soaked. I, this week, came across a, uh, a question that was sent to a pastor, a senior pastor of a larger church. It was a committee of uh, a church planting commission from, from a presbytery. They were asking the senior pastor if one of the associate pastors was, would be suitable as a church planter, if he would recommend him as a church planter to go off on his own and plant a church. And in the response that the senior pastor gave, there's one line that jumped out to me. Listen to this. He's teachable, but doesn't yet have the embedded humility that only comes from scars. He's teachable, but he doesn't yet have the embedded humility that comes through scars. And in light of what I've studied here in Ecclesiastes, I thought, isn't that the grace of God? 
that scars in an unregenerate heart make it hard. Damage from relationships, damage from your own sins, damage from the sins of others makes an unregenerate heart hard and cynical and hopeless and despairing and nihilistic. But scars in the life of a born-again believer in Jesus Christ actually make the heart softer, make it more humble, make it more trusting, make it more hopeful for eternity. That's what scars do in the life of a believer in Jesus Christ. Isn't the grace of God amazing? Let's pray. Father, forgive us for the cynicism that still lurks so deep in our hearts. Forgive us for giving up on relationships even more so. Forgive us for giving up on the pursuit of holiness, for settling, for accommodating to the culture, for losing our trust and our humility and our hope that's been given to us as a gift through Jesus Christ. We pray for ourselves that you would soften our hearts. Take away the scars. Take away the hardness. Fill us with passion for Christ to live a radical, holy life and to pursue Christ-like relationships with, with abandon, with vigor. And Lord, thank you for the hope, not only of power over sin, but ultimately power over death through Christ our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.